Good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Emmanuel Kuropati. Uh, just looking around, I think uh, almost all of you know me or uh, acquainted with me. I have been attending uh, Spring Meadows for a little over two years. Um, this morning, we begin a two-part study on a portion of the life of Elijah. Uh, it has been a delight to study this segment of his life. And uh, I'm humbled by this opportunity to study uh, this further with you and to teach uh, what I have learned this morning. Uh, before we uh, begin our study of God's word, let's look to God for his help. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for bringing us together to study your word. Um, we need your help uh, by your Holy Spirit. Uh, help me to teach and help us to learn these timeless truths and to apply them to our lives. Uh, illumine our hearts and minds to be hearers and doers of your word. I thank you for what you will do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, we will be looking, uh, studying certain portions of First Kings chapters 16 through 18 and certain other Old Testament and New Testament passages to add depth to our study. Uh, before we actually uh, examine those passages, uh, it is important that we get a broad overview of, uh, of the story. Uh, and the story is this, around 875 B.C., uh, Ahab, the son of Omri, ascends to the throne of the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, he becomes its seventh king. Uh, he is a wicked man, an evil king, and he marries Jezebel, who is the daughter of um, King Ethbal uh, of Sidon. It's a neighboring uh, uh, kingdom uh, to Israel, and at that time, Sidon was the center of uh, Baal worship. Uh, and it is an unholy union. Uh, it does not bode well for the, for the nation. Ahab leads the children of Israel astray towards idolatrous worship. Yet God does not leave his people without godly witness. And chief among those witnesses uh, is his prophet Elijah. And he comes on the scene without much fanfare, and he declares, he renders, God's judgment of drought, a covenant curse on Ahab and the nation for, its, for their idolatry. Uh, the drought is devastating. It lasts about three and a half years. Uh, towards the end of that period, uh, God commands Eli Elijah to have Ahab assemble the nation and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel uh, to, to have a showdown, to determine once and for all who the true God of Israel is. And uh, God uh, vindicates himself in a, in a dramatic way and or provides much needed rain for his people in answer to Elijah's prayers. So that is the broad uh, outline of the story. Uh, within that story, for the purposes of our study this morning and next Sunday school hour next week, we will examine uh, three confrontations that Elijah has. Uh, two of them he has with King Ahab, and the last one, the 
third one, which is the climax of the story he has with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Now, the third confrontation, which is the climax, we will examine uh, next week. Uh, so keep that on the back burner. We'll, we'll get to that next week. Uh, this morning, we will examine the events leading up to that final confrontation, uh, to that climax. So with that in mind, uh, turn your Bibles with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. We will begin uh, in verse 1. Now, I have provided an outline uh, for you to follow with, following along with. It will uh, serve as our guide. Now, there are two theological truths that we will glean from the passages before us. Uh, the first is that sin has consequences, and the second is that uh, God shows mercy in judgment. Sin has consequences, and God shows mercy in judgment. Um, now, after I, I've done uh, with the lesson, I have carved out some time for uh, discussion, for questions or comments. So if you could uh, hold on uh, to your comments towards the end, and we could address that, uh, or questions, we could address that at that point in time. So 1 Kings chapter 18, starting in verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Let's keep on down to uh, verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you, uh, you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. So this is Elijah's uh, second confrontation with the wicked king Ahab. By now, the, the, the drought has been raging on for uh, three and a half years. And uh, after this period of time, when Ahab sees Elijah, he is quick to condemn him. He is quick to call him the troubler of Israel. Now, Ahab's uh, accusation of Elijah is quite re uh, revealing of his character. Uh, he is the king of Israel. He is the leader of the nation. And under his watch, uh, the nation which had turned from worshiping Yahweh, really full on, fully turned from Yahweh towards worshiping Baal, and it had become the state religion of the land. Uh, and the reason why Baal was worshipped, he was a storm god, and he was to uh, provide rainstorms and, uh, uh, and, and allow fertility for the land. But instead of getting or obtaining the blessing of rain, they have been uh, cursed with a drought for three and a half years. And Ahab does not see this. He does not see through this. He does not reevaluate his, his leadership, the choices and the decisions that he had made as its king, and instead he turns and shifts the blame towards Elijah, his arch enemy. He's quick to call him the troubler of Israel. And uh, uh, we, we see here that uh, Ahab has hardened his heart. Instead of repenting uh, and showing some remorse, he has hardened his heart even in the, in the, in the midst of judgment uh, from the Lord. 
And Elijah uh, does not have any of this, and he says to Ahab, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house. The Hebrew word akar is used for the word troubled, and it means to stir up, uh, to disturb, to cause harm. So Elijah is condemning Ahab, saying, you have disturbed and you have caused harm to the people of Israel. And how had he done so? The text tells us he had done so by uh, disobeying the commandments and going after the Baals. Now, in order for us to better understand why such an indictment had fallen on Ahab and on the people of Israel, uh, we need to get an understanding of what these commandments are that Elijah uh, references here. We need to go further back in the history of the nation of Israel to a time before its kings, to a time before they had even entered and taken possession of the land, when the nation had started out as a theocracy and not a, mon and not a monarchy as it is now. So turn your Bibles with me if, uh, to uh, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be reading verses 3 to 5. Here is Yahweh speaking to the nation. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So clearly there's a com this commandment is against idolatry for the people. And the second main commandment we'll look at is in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7.3 You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. A clear command against intermarriage from the people of the surrounding nations because of their idolatrous practices, that they would turn the heart of the Israelites away from Yahweh. Now, again, this, this command has nothing to do with ethnicity, but it has everything to do with theology, who it is you will worship as God. And the third commandment we will look at is, in, is found in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Deuteron Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, Let us go after other gods which we which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So here we have a clear commandment against being led by or going after false prophets or false teachers that would lead them away from the worship of Yahweh as the one true God. So with those commandments in mind, let's move forward again back to 1 Kings chapter 16 this time. 
And let's see how Ahab fares in his obedience to these commandments from the Lord. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So clearly Ahab disobeyed all three of those commandments, those uh, main crucial commandments, which have to do with two important life issues, worship and family, who you will worship as God, and who you will raise your family the next generation with. And because of his disobedience, and as the leader of the nation, he turned the heart of the people away from the Lord. As go the, goes the leader, go the people. And this was the sad reality of Ahab and the nation of Israel turning from Yahweh towards, uh, towards Baal as their, as their God. And so as a result of that, in response to the wicked idolatry of King Ahab and the people, the Lord God judges them. In 1 Kings 17, verse 1, we see what this judgment is. 1 Kings 17, verse 1, Elijah says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these, three, these years except by my word. Now this judgment was clearly a covenant curse on the people for their, uh, for their disobedience to Yahweh. Uh, if you will recall in Deuteronomy 28, there is a list of blessings and a litany of curses, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience that God promised to his people uh, if they were to disobey him. And drought was one of those covenant curses that God promised his people if they were to turn from him and turn to idols. Uh, now here, uh, you have to marvel at this because this, in the providence of God, the very reason for Baal worship, which was to bring rain, much-readed rain for the people, brings upon the people the covenant curse of drought. Now, Baal, who was the storm god, was worshipped and known. Um, uh, he was believed, it was believed that it was within his sole power to bring rainstorms and provide fertility to the land. Uh, but instead of looking to God uh, for that blessing, the, uh, the people under the leadership of Ahab, they turned to Baal. Prophet Jeremiah had this scathing rebuke uh, against the idolatrous nation when he said, they, referring to the people, do, do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. So instead of worshiping and trusting Yahweh for this blessing, they turned to the lifeless idol, Baal, for help. And through his judgment on, uh, on the people uh, in, in giving this drought, uh, 
through his judgment on the people and given his drought uh, on the land, God was, Yahweh was, uh, uh, was establishing his supremacy over Baal. He, just as he had established supremacy of the, over the gods of Egypt when he brought the ten plagues on, on, the land, on the Egyptians, here God is establishing his supremacy over Baal that he alone is the one true God that can give rain, that has the power to give rain and the power to withhold that rain from the people. Now we know something about drought. We have been in the middle of a drought here for, I don't know, a few months. We haven't had any rain. And we've seen on the news the devastating effects of drought on places like California, Washington, and other states, how it has uh, provided uh, uh, fertile ground for these wildfires. Now, we're looking, consider, we're looking at 8th century ancient Israel. And a drought was devastating to them because they, they were an agrarian society. So drought meant certain death to their live, livelihood and to their economy. The ancient Israel farmer, he looked for two rainy seasons, a um, uh, early rain, which was in the autumn, uh, right, right about the time of the sowing, and then a late rain uh, during, the, uh, during the spring season, right before harvest. And both rainy seasons were crucial uh, for a bountiful harvest. Uh, and this three years of drought totally negated that harvest for the people. So we see here that sin has consequences. It has dire consequences for, for the people of God. And a holy and righteous God must judge his people for their sins. And yet, even in judgment, we'll see that God shows mercy. Even in judgment, God shows mercy. And that is our next point. And we see the mercy of God in judgment in three ways. Uh, first, we see that God had not abandoned his people yet. And we see that in 1 Kings 17, 1, even in the pronouncement of the judgment of drought through, the, uh, through his spokesman, Elijah, God says, or Elijah says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, so God is still claiming himself uh, as the God of Israel. God is still availing himself to the people as their God. Even though they had forsaken him and rejected him and turned from him to Baal, God had not forsaken them. Even though they had uh, reneged on the terms uh, of on their uh, end of the covenant, God had not abandoned his covenant with his people. And the second way in which God shows mercy in judgment is that God, uh, even in the midst of national apostasy, God has not, had not left his people without righteous witness. There's still righteous witness. There's a righteous remnant that has been preserved even in, this, in the midst of this national apostasy. And chief among those witnesses is his, pro is his prophet Elijah. Let's spend a few minutes uh, learning about this man. There are three things I, I would like for us to see about Elijah. The first thing is his name. It's a beautiful name, and it has a profound meaning. The Hebrew, the Hebrew word El in the, in the name Elijah means God, 
And the Hebrew word Jah or Yah in, in that name is a short form of the divine name Yahweh, which means or which is translated as Lord. So Elijah's name means Yahweh is my God or the Lord is my God. So in the midst of national apostasy, God sends his prophet whose name sends a clear message that Yahweh is my God, not Baal, not Asherah, but Yahweh is my God. Now, if Yahweh had been their God and rightly worshiped so, the people would not be experiencing such a drought in their land. So Elijah, Yahweh is my God. The second thing we see here about Elijah is that he is God's spokesman. He speaks God's words to his people. Uh, he calls the people away from their idolatry and calls on them to return to Yahweh. Uh, and then he warns them of God's judgment and he brings God's words of judgment, in this case, the drought on the people for their idolatrous practices. And the third thing is that uh, Elijah is also a man of prayer. He is a man of prayer. He prays for his people, and he prayed for God's judgment on the people for their sins. Now, now the narrative in 1 Kings 17 does not give us much information. It does not shed much light on the private life of Elijah, but the apostle James does. If you turn over to James chapter 5, verse 17, All right, James chapter 5, verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. So as I was thinking about preparing for this, this study and, and this specific portion of the study, um, trying to understand yeah. and his prayer life and also what we know what God had commanded Elijah to do in bringing this uh, uh, in rendering this judgment on the land um, I was trying to understand the sovereignty of God and prayer how they interplay how they interact and as I was thinking about this one of the uh, early church fathers, uh, St. Augustine, his quote came to my mind, and this is what Augustine said. Uh, kind of lost my place here. Augustine said, uh, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. So with that in mind, let's, under, let's try to examine what, uh, how Elijah is an illustration of that for us. Uh, what, is, what was God's command to Elijah? He had commanded Elijah to appear before the wicked king Ahab as if that wasn't bad enough, 
he was to render God's judgment on Ahab and on the people of Israel. So it was a double whammy. Uh, Elijah must, from a human perspective, he must have been thinking, God has commanded me to my doom. Uh, he, he, he was thinking maybe there's a like, strong likelihood that I might be killed here uh, because by now there had already been a purge of the uh, prophets of God. We did not know from the narrative at what point that began, but it was ongoing. Uh, Jezebel had already killed off some of the prophets of the Lord and Obadiah, another righteous man in the land, had preserved, saved a hundred of those prophets. So Elijah had, uh, had good reason to worry for his life, to be afraid for his life. So what does Elijah do? He turns to the Lord in prayer and Elijah says, Lord, give what you command. Grant me the ability to stand before this wicked king and grant me the ability to obey your command and render your judgment of drought on the land. Uh, and even in the judgment of the drought, right? God, it was God's will that the drought fall on the land and he had commanded this to, to, uh, uh, to Elijah to, to render to the people. Even in that, Elijah turns to the Lord and says, Lord, you had given uh, this command. It is your will that the drought fall on the land. So may your will come. May grant what you had commanded and grant what you had command, grant me the ability to obey you and to render that command, render your will to the people. Um, so, so that's how we are to understand the sovereignty of God and prayer in our lives. Prayer is taking hold of God's sovereignty. It's surrendering. It's a great means of grace that God has given us in, t in, in surrendering ourselves to the sovereignty of God in our lives. Um, the third means in which God shows judgment, uh, mercy in judgment is the judgment itself. Uh, God has uh, God, judgment in, in God's purposes, in God's plan, is not an end in itself, but God uses the judgment to bring about repentance, to bring about those, uh, those idolatrous people to repent of their sins and to return to him. In fact, in De Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 3, we do, not, we do not have to turn to that, but Yahweh promises mercy to his people, when they repent of their sins and they return to him. Uh, so we see that sin has consequences, and because Ahab and the people disobeyed God in turning from him to idolatry, they faced the consequences of sin in terms of a drought, a covenant curse on them. But even in his judgment of this covenant curse, the drought, God shows mercy to the people. He had not abandoned them, uh, he had left them with a godly witness. Uh, chief among them was his prophet Elijah, who gives him their word. He gives God's word to the people, and he prays for the people. And even in judgment, God is desiring the people to repent of their sins and to return to him. Uh, so as, as I studied this, there were three areas that seemed to apply to me, and uh, they may apply to you, uh, and during our time of uh, discussion, you can, 
you can uh, share how this might apply to us this day. You know, we're removed, many centuries removed from ancient Israel, and here we are in 21st century, but some of these truths still, still apply to us. And one of the things that stood out to me was that we should be students of history. The problem with the children of Israel is that they had forgotten their history. They had forgotten the, uh, the commandments of the Lord. They had forgotten the covenant the, the covenant blessings for obedience, and they had forgotten the, the God of their covenant. So while God's word gives us theology, it also provides for us a sweeping history of his eternal covenant of redemption for his people. So we must, like Bereans, regularly engage with all of God's words. I know personally, I sometimes tend to gravitate towards uh, the epistles, the gospels, the New Testament, but it's important that we engage with the historical books, uh, the prophetic books, even the five bo first five books of the Bible, uh, because all of that teaches uh, God's history of his redemption for us. Uh, as, I was re as I was doing this study, I happened to read a, a certain uh, conference lecture uh, by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, the title of that lecture is, Can We Learn From History? And in that lecture, one of those, um, what, what he had to say really stood out to me. He said, mankind in its folly and stupidity goes on repeating the same old mistakes. It does not learn, it refuses to learn. But I will not accept this as being true of the Christian. My contention is that the Christian should learn from history. That is, because he is a Christian, it is his duty to do so, and he must rouse himself to do so. So our first application is that we must learn from our history and regularly engage with God's word uh, as he has unfolded history for us in Holy Scripture. And the second application that I saw here was those theological truths, namely that sin has consequences and that God must judge his people for their sins, are timeless. These are timeless truths because they are rooted in the eternal character, in the character of our eternal God. So we need to heed and apply those truths to our lives this very day. And the last application that I saw here was that just as God had preserved a remnant during the time of Ahab, God is preserving a remnant this very day, right here in 21st century Las Vegas. And you and I are part of that remnant. We are, that, we are to be that uh, spokesman, uh, that witness, the salt and light as Elijah was during that dark time, and we ought to be that today. We ought to engage with the people in our lives towards gospel, uh, gospel witness. And may we labor together prayerfully to proclaim the gospel of saving repentance from idolatry and faith in the one true God, the God of Elijah. So I will uh, pause here. I will stop here for now. At this time, I would like to open the floor for uh, uh, your comments, any questions that you might have, um, and then we could uh, end after that. Um, 
that what I wanted to uh, address is sort of I, I've been listening to some Jewish commentators recently talk about the Old Testament, and I think that there's a really important distinction that you brought up, um, and that is to apply the Old Testament in light of the New. And the way that you incorporated that section from James is really telling because if you listen to Jewish commentators, what they'll tend to do is speak of Elijah or Moses in sort of soaring terms and look look at them in in sort of moralistic ways um, as high moral figures. And James there grounds Elijah and makes him a human. It says, with a nature like ours. Um, So, yeah, like, just elaborate on that a little bit more. What else did you find in in your um, study that sort of grounded uh, the the character of Elijah? Well, uh, one of the things that was quite telling, it's not in in the narrative, the passages that we looked at, but uh, we see that after, we'll look at that next week, after God vindicates himself and his prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel. Uh, Jezebel goes out, uh, goes after Elijah, trying to, trying to kill him. And Elijah goes on the run. He has this mountain high, and then he has this valley low. And he, he really falls into depression, spiritual depression. And and that's something that's quite telling. You know, he, here is a man that stood the ground on Mount Carmel against the prophets of Baal, against King Ahab in front of the whole nation, and yet he still uh, struggle, has very real struggles. Uh, and like, like you had stated, we shouldn't put him up in a pedestal uh, that uh, he, he has a nature just like ours. He found his strength not in himself, but in the God that he turned to and depended on. And uh, at, at some point, maybe we could look at that passage, but, uh, but it's amazing how the Lord ministers to his prophet even as he falls into that, uh, that spiritual low in his life, shortly after that spiritual mountain high. Any other On your uh, point regarding history and remembering our history, I think it's um, encouraging to see that we are encouraged throughout Scripture to do that. You see, you know, God reminding his people of, look what I've done for you. And not just the commandments and the character of God, but also how has he delivered his people over and over and over again. And you see that throughout Scripture. So I think that's something that we have to um, we should be encouraged by um, it should be uplifting to us to see um, God's character revealed in his deliverance of his people thank you thank you Greg um, I've been reading through first Kings and you know I think it's God's mercy that he shows us the cyclical nature of things and in the First Kings 11, I think it's one of the saddest passages in all of the Bible. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughters of Pharaoh. And then he mentions all the different tribes. And then he says, you shall not enter a marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they shall turn your heart after other gods. But Solomon clung to these in love. You see this here, you see 
in judges, you know, that God provides judges, there, there's a reconciliation, and then the next generation, it's everyone does what seemed right in their own eyes. So it's a cautionary tale to us, too, about how quickly our hearts can be turned and how we need to go before that throne of grace and just ask for God's protection and his mercy. Amen. Thank you. We have, if any, no one else has any questions or comments, we have a few minutes. couple of that I had drafted here, maybe we could uh, uh, okay, great, thank you. So one of the questions that I thought of was, are the, natu are the natural calamities we are experiencing today a judgment from God for our sins as the drought was for the children of Israel? Any thoughts on that? Would you like them? Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. So yes and no uh, would be like, and I I'd actually plan. Uh, one of the questions that I was thinking of during uh, during your lesson was, you know, are the wildfires in California a judgment on Hollywood? Say, and I I mean the answer is yes and no. The the cup of God's wrath overflows, um, you know, in in judgment. Um, but his, his hand is, is stayed, uh, you know, um, in, in meaningful ways as well. There's blessing and there's curse all over the world at, at, you know, at, at various times. Um, and, uh, but, you know, in, in the same, does he treat sort of the United States in the same way that he would have treated, uh, ethnic Israel, uh, you know, during the time of the, the old covenants? Um, No. And, and we, we are, the United States is not the, the shining city on the hill. The United States is not mentioned in the Bible. Um, and I think it's important to make that distinction to say that, you know, though we were founded on Judeo-Christian uh, ethics and, and, and principles, um, this is not the new Israel. Mm. Well said. Uh, thank you, David. We got uh, any other comments? I'll ask one more question and see how far we get. Uh, do we have the freedom to pray imprecatory prayers based on what Elijah prayed? I'm going to repeat the question. Do we have the freedom to pray imprecatory prayers based on what Elijah prayed? Imprecatory prayer is praying that God would punish and judge a certain person or a certain people uh, uh, in your life for their sins. Hi, thank you. I would say while we do have the freedom, a more pertinent perspective would be are we acting with grace or are we asking for our own vindictive pleasures, right? Because you can see that a lot in the prison systems or in different things. When the goal is to punish, you are not God. And so 
while you have that freedom, if your heart is not coming from the correct posture, I would imagine that the Lord would correct you instead. That's a great, uh, great perspective. Any other thoughts? I guess I'll go with Dave's answer, yes and no. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, in that we pray the Lord's Prayer, and we pray for thy kingdom to come, but in terms of specific, Lord, go get that rotten, dirty person because of X, Y, and Z, we don't have such specificity. We don't know why or who, you know, the elect are. That, that came out wrong. We, we don't know who the elect is. It's the day of salvation. We preach the gospel. We tell people to repent and turn from such sins that deserve that kind of punishment, certainly, but we call them the Savior. It's a, a, a great point that Dan brought up in that when we are asking for the kingdom of God, we are asking for the kingdom of God as well. You know, when, when the kingdom of God comes and that, that final day that Dan was talking about, there will be a winnowing, there will be a separation, and we're asking for that when we pray the Lord's Prayer. So to remember that there are, are imprecations, how do you say that? How do you, how do you say uh, there are, there's, yeah, there's imprecations even in um, a, 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 a solid and, and soul-filling prayer, Lord's Prayer. Well, at, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we have to realize that we have all been idolaters who have come to saving faith. God had saved us from idolatry, and we are still recovering idolaters. Uh, he's still sanctifying us through His Word and prayer, and uh, we should not uh, be vindictive, whoever it is in our lives, uh, whether it be colleagues or, or, or unbelieving colleagues or friends or family members, uh, at the heart of our prayer should be their conversion and their salvation. Yes, we're praying God's kingdom to come, and it is coming, it has come, it is expanding. How is that kingdom became, becoming a, 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 a greater and a greater reality? It is through the gospel. And he, God has not only uh, saved us from the kingdom of darkness and made us sons of the kingdom of his son, but he has also invited us to expand his kingdom, to be laborers in his vineyard. And one day, the kingdom will be fully consummated, and one day every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And at that time, whoever does not repent will will face his vindication, his full, full fury and wrath. But we should pray and work that as many as he had called, as he had elected to salvation, would come to saving faith. So let me go ahead. Uh, if there are no other comments or questions, we only got a couple of minutes. So let me go ahead and close this out, and uh, let's get ready for worship. Thank you, guys. Almighty God, I thank you again for your word. I thank you for this uh, time together. Lord, I pray that you would use us 
uh, in the coming days uh, as you used Elijah. I pray that we would be your spokesman, that we would uh, declare to the world, uh, to our community, that Yahweh is my God in how we live our lives, in, in how we uh, conduct ourselves among uh, the people in our community. I thank you again for this time that we could gather together as worship, prepare our hearts, continue to prepare our hearts. I pray that you'd be with Dan as he brings your word. Use him in a mighty way by your Holy Spirit uh, to teach us what you would have us learn and help us to uh, apply those truths and live them out in, th in, in thanksgiving to you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <laughs>